very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, we just want to mention we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a buck a month there. Today, we're happy to welcome Graham Harmon back to the podcast to discuss his original work on Heidegger, Tool Being, Heidegger and the Metaphysics of Objects, originally published in 2002. But Graham, we really, really enjoyed the last time you were on the show. We'll be sure to link that episode in the show notes for our listeners. And uh, we're just very excited to have you back. Like I said, just really enjoyed our time with you last time and are grateful that uh, you're giving us your Sunday afternoon. I enjoyed it equally. And I, as you know, I just checked and it was almost exactly two years ago that I appeared on this podcast. <laughs> no, it's, it's great. Um, and I think we, we, we warned you a little bit, but we did want, want to go back down memory lane and, and maybe give you the chance to, to tell and, and perhaps retell some of the story of your origin story, you know, getting into philosophy, Heidegger, just a little bit of that, of your quote unquote turn, not to pun, right? Or maybe to pun. I did that on purpose. But uh, <laughs> just tell us a little bit about, about your, your genesis. When I was 14, and then again, when I was 15, my mother signed me up for a couple of philosophy classes slash activities without asking me. I guess she knew me better than I knew myself, which is often the case with mothers. The first was a kind of after school meeting. There was a small college in my hometown. And so a philosophy professor held a philosophy class. This is for late junior high school students, seventh, eighth graders. And uh, we read the uh, Apology, Credo, and Phaedo, mm -hmm. Plato, which, you know, those are nice dialogues, but I wasn't ready to appreciate them at that age. To me, it was just overly pious stuff about virtue and justice and the law. It didn't really excite me about philosophy. And I didn't think I had any special talent for it. I had a hard time talking, as I often did, uh, until I became a professor. I was often tongue-tied as a student. And so uh, it didn't do much for me, but I, it's a nice thing to look back on. And then when I was 15, it was a night class held by a very popular high school teacher in our town. That was on the philosophy of law. That one interested me a little more. That was about cases like uh, three shipwreck survivors are in a lifeboat, two of them kill and eat the third one, <laughs> of murder. I was a little more interested in that because I, you know, interesting, uh, radical, controversial cases. I could sort of wrap my head around that. That was uh -huh. a little closer for me to what I wanted to, to think about. But it wasn't until I was 16 the following year, which is that we had a set of encyclopedias around the house that I did mm -hmm. read frequently. So that was a good investment. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. one night, it was October of 1984, I was 16 years old, beginning of my junior year in high school. I think I, I imagined a future in music or computer science at that point. And I just realized, no, I actually don't know that much about philosophy. So I pulled out the P volume 
the encyclopedia, just sat down and read the encyclopedia article straight through on philosophy, and I was hooked. The yeah. difference, I guess, was that this presented philosophy as a kind of sequence of rival systems that right. came up with new, unusual ideas. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. You know, how Spinoza said this, and then Hume said this, and it's not really clear who's right. So mm -hmm. we have to get into this and try to figure it out. And these are big metaphysical theories. And that's when I knew what I wanted to be. And it's, it's never wavered for a minute since then. So it's been uh, 40 years now, I guess. So, uh, yeah, that was the beginning for me. And then, like a lot of kids at that, that age, with a rebellious streak, I started with Nietzsche. So I was up at the college library in our town reading Nietzsche a lot at night. I still remember those, those hours fondly. And then um, my parents were very good gift givers. You know, they were, they were hippies. They were... <laughs> There was a lot of 1960s type books around the house. There was Buckminster Fuller and the Whole Earth Catalog and those kinds of things. And I think there was maybe a philosophy book from my father's brief time in university. Mm -hmm. And um, they, my parents are excellent gift givers, as I mentioned. And they got me a history of philosophy. And they didn't just randomly pick a history of philosophy. They seemed to have done some research and they nailed exactly the right history of philosophy. It was the Julian Marius one from Dover which uh, is written from a continental perspective. Right. Andreas, a disciple of Jose Ortega Gasset. And uh, very, very much, a, unlike Bertrand Russell or one of those others, very much a continental standpoint of great figures being what guided that. And that's exactly the kind of thing I was interested in. And so I, I read through that. There's a kind of maybe somewhat overblown final chapter on the School of Madrid, which you know, interesting groups of people, but maybe not interesting enough to merit however many pages it was. I did become interested in Ortega through that. Someone not read that much anymore. He was read more during the heyday of existentialism. There's a lot of his stuff in English. And so I started reading all of his stuff in English. And that would lead eventually to my discover of his metaphor essay in college, which became kind of the foundational text for Triple O of En Was Because that, I also uh, learned about Husserl from the Marius history, and it described him as the remote leader of contemporary philosophy. And I said, oh, I thought this sounds interesting. Phenomenal. Interesting. So I got a little into Husserl. And then uh, Heidegger, it was more that my freshman year of college, people were talking about Heidegger a lot. And I need to go back a little because I, I did, uh, like most kids in Iowa, I did some agricultural labor in the summer to earn money. There's this thing called corn detasseling, you know, the tassel, the fuzzy thing that sticks out the top of the corn plant and that has the pollen in it. You uh, need to pull that out just before it appears if you want to prevent unwanted cross-pollination. You can contract for a certain number of acres, or you can sit in a machine and do it and do it for an hourly wage. I was advised to do a contract. And it's tough work because the, there's only like a three, four day window when you can do it. And if you miss too many tassels, you'll have to redo it. And it, it involves, it's a hot time of year. It's you know mid to late July. There's right. a lot of mosquitoes, there's mud, there's pesticide. So it's, it's not the most pleasant way to earn money. But when you're, when you're a kid in Iowa in the 1980s and you're going to get paid a hundred some dollars per acre or whatever it was, right. Sizable amount of money. So in 1985, which was my third and final year of doing it, I um, ended up with some money walking through of all things, a Barnes and Noble near the university of Iowa campus and saw a copy of being in time and bought it. And, uh, you know, started leafing through the first few pages was unable to read it, but, I right. Old German, and so that made me feel at home with all the German words in brackets. I could mm -hmm. recognize a lot of the German. I had four years of German in high school, but you know what high school foreign languages are like. Sometimes you're not right. 
in the US, you're not really learning the languages that well. So I tried, I think it took me my third try to finish till finishing being a time. I was then 19, I was a sophomore. And actually I, I read something else first. I had a, we had a very frustrating class one day on medieval logic. I liked the teacher a lot. It was a elderly man who was a historian of astronomy, Curtis Wilson, wonderful guy. But the, he was an expert on um, Kepler and things like that. Okay. We were talking about medieval logic and it was interesting material, but somehow the discussion left me frustrated. And so I happened to go to the bookstore after class and I saw a copy of Heidegger's Metaphysical Foundations of Logic, which is his book, his lecture course on Leibniz. Actually, doesn't teach you much about logic, but it teaches you quite a bit about Heidegger and his view of Leibniz. And right, right. His lecture courses are more readable sometimes than being in time. And that's what hooked me. I would even go into classrooms alone at night and reproduce some of his diagrams on the board. And that's when I started to find the philosopher I, I wanted to work on. And I knew he was one of the really important contemporary ones. And I wanted to work on an important contemporary thinker. And at St. John's, where I was an undergrad, we mostly did older stuff. Right. Okay. We weren't doing Heidegger in those days. We, we did one Husserl essay, but otherwise we stopped with Freud in those days. And uh, so Heidegger was already kind of risque contemporary for St. John. I then read Being in Time, and I think I went to the library. I read every Heidegger book in English in the library. I realized, oh, I, I, you know, I have some German. I'm, I should make myself read this stuff in German. So I went and right. checked out some of the German Heidegger. From, they had the whole set there. And that was hard for me uh, because my German, as I mentioned, was high school level. And then only in graduate school, my first year of graduate school, did I realize, look, I'm going to be working a lot on Heidegger. I can't be taken seriously unless I read it all in the original. And the other factor at the time was that the Beiträger, the Beiträger zur Philosophie, had just come out in 1989 in German. And Reiner Schurman, who was still alive, was announcing this is the second great work. And I thought, I got to know what's in there. I got to know what's in there. And it's going to take years to translate it. I went to New York with my friend, got a copy of... Uh, by Traeger in German at Mary Rosenberg's old store in Manhattan, where they sold all that stuff. And okay. Sat down and read through it, and it took me a year and a half because the By Traeger has really tough German. Okay, interesting. I was looking up literally every word I didn't know, and of course, there's <laughs> a lot of words in that book that don't exist. You have to kind of figure out what they mean. And I thought, this is, this is endless, but one thing I've always been pretty good at is I'm good at being a workhorse. I can sit for hours alone every day over many years and, and finish off projects that other people would give up on. So I, I just stuck to it, diligence. And I thought, okay, but this is, I really have to figure out a way to speed up. And then what's going to be my second one? Okay, I decided to do the 1929-30 course, which my professor, Will McNeil, was translating at the time. And so I took it to one of my two lucky coffee shops in Chicago. There used to be two, two coffee shops on, on Lincoln Avenue, right across, right around the corner from DePaul. Trevi and, and Equinox, and I call them my lucky coffee shops because whenever I was in a jam and I needed to write a paper really fast or read something really fast, I was able to do it at one of those two coffee shops. Oh, nice. They're, they're both closed now, but they were my go-to throughout the 1990s when I was at DePaul. And I pulled out the 1929-30 course and I read through the first page and I said, oh, I didn't even, I know all these words. And then I read another page and I believe I sat there and read 75 pages in one sitting without even going to the bathroom. And I thought, wow, I did it the right way. The Beiträger was like when you're jogging with ankle weights on, right? Toughens you up. And then after that, I never really needed a dictionary because Heidegger, like any author, has a limited vocabulary, even in his own language. And so after that, it was just bing, 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 one Gazamta Oskaba volume after another. And it took me 
1998, another six years to read all the ones that existed at the time, which was 70 some. And so there I was, I was 28 years old, 29 years old, and I'd read all of Heidegger in German, which not too many American PhD students could say. And right. the value of that was that people couldn't pull that sneaky thing on me anymore. Well, oh, well, you haven't read volume 43. That's yeah, yeah. Because I had read it all. Nobody could pull that on me. And I, I kept up with all the new ones for a while until around 2010 or so. It just started getting too repetitive. And right. I stopped reading. People could pull the trick on me now of saying, oh, but you haven't read the most recent movie. <laughs> Yeah, Heidegger became my thing in my 20s. And then tool being is essentially my dissertation. I, I did go through and re stylistically revise every sentence. And I added a couple of sections, one on Dreyfus, one on Zizek. Yeah. Dissertation. And actually, there was a lot more on the secondary literature in the dissertation version. My advisor made me take it out because he said the dissertation was getting too long. And he was right. Oh. We didn't get along very well. He's It's Will McNeil. He's still at um, DePaul. And He's not, a, he's not a horrible guy, but he's, when I was invited back to DePaul in 2013, he was asked to give the introductory lecture, and it was awfully condescending. It was about how I'd shown improvements. And oh. so there's not a lot of love lost between us, but <laughs> he, he did make one important suggestion in my dissertation, even though he was hands-off and I wanted him to be hands-off. He wanted me to go back to Aristotle's metaphysics and uh, weave that into the third part, which I did. And that's, he's right. There's a lot of Aristotle in my approach. And Aristotle has become an important reference for me increasingly over the years. But, um, you know, they say every book has its fate, and tool being has had a very interesting fate in a number of ways. First of all, in terms of influence, interrupt me any time here, I'm, otherwise I'm just... No, gonna... this segues into the discussion of, of the book, so this is good. Right. On the one hand, tool being has had almost no palpable influence on Heidegger studies in the sense that, you know, I, I suppose people read it. Uh, I know some of these people have recommended their students to read it, but it, there aren't really references showing up to my work in Heidegger's scholarship. There was a time when I imagined that my future was making a mark in Heidegger's scholarship. So that would, right. have, really, would have really disappointed the me of 1992 or 93. <laughs> what I learned over time is that, no, that can't happen uh, for various reasons. And I'll go into those. But uh, nonetheless, I've done some checking. And as far as I can tell, it is the second most cited Heidegger book by anyone. Number one is Dreyfus being in the world, and that's for the very good reason that Dreyfus is the source for analytic philosophers on Heidegger. It seems to be offered in undergraduate. I mean, I read it as an undergraduate, and it helped me rethink how I was struggling through being in time. It clarifies some things. It's, I think it's fundamentally wrong-headed in some ways, mm -hmm. but we'll get into that later. That's number one. Tool being's number two, and, and that Richardson's yeah. big book is third place. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, 1974 or maybe even earlier, 60s, I think. And then Derrida's Up Spirit is actually bringing up behind those in fourth place. That's uh, 13 years older than my book. So right. it's found an audience more than Derrida's Up Spirit and Richardson's book. That audience is not a Heidegger scholar audience primarily. It's, it's an interesting uh, right. What's that? Uh, no, I, I was agreeing with you. I think that not to interrupt, just to, just to intersperse, like that, that the, the people who... I wouldn't consider Heideggerians had read your work, especially, you know, not just when it came out. When it came out, I remember my mentor, Sid Littlefield, who I wouldn't, he was more of a Delizian. He was reading it. It was, it was Heidegger for non-Heideggerians to a certain extent, right? Yes, that's right. Actually, I think I'll say, say what I think is happening with, with Heidegger scholarship, and this is a natural process. If you think back to the 17th century and Descartes appeared and was was uh, 
demolishing what was left of medieval philosophy at that point, there was that period in the 1600s where if you were doing new philosophy, you had to be some form of Cartesian. There's Malebranche and there's Spinoza and there's different mm-hmm. people acting to Descartes in different ways. Well, if you go to a Descartes conference now, that's not what's happening, right? If you go to a Descartes conference, you're getting historians right. who are analyzing his letters to such and such or what were the influences on Descartes. It's not people who are claiming to do more more than early modern philosophy scholarship. And that's fine. That's great figures deserve that. Heidegger, of course, there was a period when Heidegger's scholarship was sort of mixed with cutting edge continental philosophy. Already when I was in graduate school, I started in 1990, you could work on Heidegger, but it was considered a little bit old fashioned already. Hmm. Derrida is where the action was in 1990. Deleuze wasn't even, I'll talk about Deleuze in a second, but Derrida was where the action was. (laughs) Foucault in non-philosophy departments, like history, geography, but it was Derrida. If you wanted to do continental philosophy and be at the cutting edge, you had to be Derrida or you were a little square. So already Heidegger was shifting into becoming a kind of classic rather than a contemporary. And so now you've got this point where we've gotten to this point where Heidegger's scholars might think they're at the cutting edge philosophically, but they're really not. Uh, Mm -hmm. Too much has happened since his death. And so they've kind of locked in to trying to understand Heidegger as he understood himself which is what scholars do. And that's fine. It's just that that's not what tool being is trying to do. I'm trying to claim that Heidegger, the way he understood himself, misses the point of his philosophy, which can sound arrogant, but actually, no. I mean, even in physics, Einstein reinterpreted the Michelson-Morley experiment in ways that Michelson-Morley did not like at all. Um, In fact, it was kind of embarrassing. They finally gave one of them the Nobel Prize for being the foundation of Einstein's special relativity, but it turned out he despised Einstein's special relativity. So (laughs) it put the Nobel Committee in this embarrassing position and they had to give him the prize for something else. That's where Heidegger's scholarship is today. And so it's not really surprising that none of them seek me out. None of them quote me. They all kind of pretend to be amused by me if they even do that. Sometimes they invite me for things, but they're sort of rolling their eyes as they invite me for things. They have to show their allegiance or something like this, right? That that you would be sort of anathema to true Heideggerianism. That's true. And another factor is Heidegger's scholarship is fairly committed to developmentalist readings. You cite a couple of other thinkers that also oppose a developmentalist reading of Heidegger, like, uh, is it Kassiel or Kiesel? Yes. So you do have at least some allies on that front, but... It would seem that if you are doing Heidegger scholarship, you need to be able to sort of create this complex trajectory rather than what you try to do and, and go back and say, no, look, look back at the first published lecture right. course in 1919. You can find everything you need. And I think that that would maybe deflate the aspirations of of scholarly mastery or whatever it is that might be going on, that the big story that the meta narrative or the grand narrative that one might want to tell about Heidegger. There's a broader problem here with historicist assumptions, which is that you know, historicism is maybe one of the great intellectual contributions made by modernity, but it boils down to this idea that history is like an atmosphere in which we dwell and that atmosphere constantly shifts as we move forward, but it's so foundational that you can't ever really escape that atmosphere. And so nothing can ever be really understood unless you contextualize it completely in terms of everything that was going on. And been reading a lot of Marxism and Frankfurt School stuff lately, that assumption is baked into all that stuff. This idea, and you know, of course, it's capital that's the dominant historicist motif for them. And uh, what's wrong with that? Well, it's better than its alternative. 
right. which is a kind of conservative conservative eternalism, which is that there's a kind of perennial true content that even the Greeks and the Romans knew, and we can rediscover that today. Right. The problem with that is that I don't think truth is a content. I don't think there is such a thing as a moral truth that can be read off of a reality and relearned again and again. I think that, you know, for me, it's more about reality than truth. We uh, bump up against reality, and a, a truth is our somewhat inadequate attempt to formulate a reality in words. And so truths are never really enough for me. It's different for Badiou, I know, but for me, it's about realities, not about truths. And so I do think we need to move away from this idea that simply the historic atmosphere of a certain time is so determinative for everything that we have to contextualize it all. No, I, th I think people break out of that historic atmosphere, and that's when interesting things happen. And here, here Badiou and I agree, the mere occupation of a historical site and time doesn't give you anything more than just a kind of surface effect. And you have to burrow beneath that to find something interesting. Right. And the same thing, I think, goes for the individual biographies of individual thinkers. So the fact mm -hmm. that Heidegger history is changing from 1919 through the 1950s doesn't mean that Heidegger's philosophy is changing mm -hmm. in any significant way from 1919 through the 1950s. I think he puts his basic ideas in a certain number of different permutations as time goes by. But Kissel is the one who talks about how Aragonus is already big in the 1919 lecture course. And in his big, fat, purple book on Heidegger, what is it called? The Genesis of Being in Time, where he covers all those lecture courses. Uh, yeah. And I should say that I, I didn't have a personal relationship with Kissel. I'd see him at conferences, but I was a young graduate student. He was an old established scholar. I never went up to him. And he was probably a little too scholastic for my tastes. But um, I, I liked that when I first read it which was mm -hmm. 1995. And I found that I agreed once I started reading those early lecture courses. The tool analysis is already there in 1919. Aragnus, his fourfold structure is already there. And the fourfold is something no one was talking about back then, except um, the guy in Nice. Why am I blanking on his name? He's, he's deceased now. French, he wrote a number, number of books on Heidegger, Hildeland, and the fourfold. It wasn't, uh, is, is it someone you cite in Tool Being, Tamino, LaFont? Uh... No, it was someone I was citing later, I think, because I okay. when I was in Egypt, I think. Okay. But he was he was very good on the fourfolds. I'll remember it later. I'm getting sure. bad with names as I age. But, uh, you know, now Andrew Mitchell's kind of picked it up in his book on the fourfold, but he, he trivialized my contribution in this French guy's in his footnote. You shouldn't really do. You should you should give due credit to people who have been there before you. But um, now people are talking about the fourfolds, which seem like this impenetrably opaque Heidegger kitsch romantic poetry thing, but it's not. It really is his twist on phenomenology. You can find where the fourfold comes out of his reading of Husserl in 1919. So the early Heidegger became the thing for me. And then, I, of course, I appreciated the late stuff on the thing and on the uh, building going thinking and, and to some extent technology, though it's a little monotonous. But all of those are really rooted in his early stuff. And I, he himself said, every thinker thinks one great thought. I've said it's more like three or four up to six thoughts that a philosopher has. And so you don't need to chart every micro variation in the career of a thinker. That's ultimately not that rewarding. You want to see how a thinker struggles to fit together their three or four or five or six basic ideas. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with you about this question of history. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned Badu there. I can see Deleuze saying something similar when he's thinking about his what he says, his generation was one of the last to be sort of bludgeoned. I think he literally says assassinated <laughs> by the history of philosophy, right? It, it can be useful, but to a certain extent, I, I can imagine Deleuze saying that is its own 
discipline. It is precisely history. <laughs> Philosophy is supposed to be involved with the creation of concepts. And so history can help to a point. But as you kind of put it your way, and I agree with it, the interesting things is is the deviation from them. Sort of what what can the use be be put? How can it be put to use rather than rather than laying down factual bases for their own sake? Yes. And actually I have something to say about Deleuze in this case. I I encountered Deleuze pretty early. That was 1990. It was my first graduate course with Alfonso Lingus at Penn State, and we read Anti-Oedipus. And uh, at the time, it's hard for people today to realize that Deleuze was not taken that seriously back then. Because now you have people calling him our Kant's and greatest philosopher in centuries, this kind of thing. <laughs> That's not what he was in 1990. In 1990, he was paired with Baudrillard in that class. And I like Baudrillard too, but that's kind of the level he was at. Gotcha. This kind of irreverent, finger in the eye, face smeared with cherry pie sort of bad boy. <laughs> it wasn't until the mid-90s that you started to see Deleuze become a thing. I remember going to a conference in uh, Edmonton. It was mm -hmm. an IEPL conference, I believe. And there was a couple of fairly obscure young scholars giving a paper on Deleuze, and it, the room was packed. And I thought, wow, Deleuze is suddenly this big? It turned out to be the case. And there are some other anecdotes surrounding that time. It turns out that architects had gotten into him a few years earlier. Architects, starting in around 1993, retired of Derrida. And so that's probably a couple of years before philosophy took the Deleuzean turn away from Derrida. And then um, architects started getting tired of Deleuze, so they're looking for other things, too. Here's what I was going to say about Deleuze. This is addressed to American readers of Deleuze. There's one point on which I think American Deleuzeans in particular follow him too closely, which is that you know, Deleuze's irreverence and humor are always a godsend. Deleuze has kind of an ironclad grip right now on how we see the history of philosophy. Everyone's reaching for Spinoza and Hume and the Epicureans, and it's kind of uncool to talk about Plato, Aristotle, Kant, and Hegel. Because right. those, are, those are the majority figures. Those are the big bad canon. What I think Americans should remember is that the big bad canon is an actual force in France that oppresses students. <laughs> right. It's not in the United States. Like, right. Since when is there too much Plato and Aristotle in the United States? I think our right move is actually the opposite. I think we need to go for the big guns. I think we need to be reading Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, Kant, and Hegel, and not following Deleuze's minor tradition, which is that simply emphasizes a weakness American students have, which is not being well-versed enough in the canon. So that's one thing I think people have wrongly followed. But anyway, otherwise, I think Deleuze has been a force for the good, even though I oppose him on a lot of philosophical issues. This is where a lot of the Deleuze scholars that we've had on generally would agree with you, especially with someone like Kant, which sometimes, you know, that lack of knowledge about sort of where Deleuze is, is trying to take the post-Kantian philosophical, you know, milieu, without that rootedness in what Kant did, a lot of what Deleuze is trying to do either is confused or lacks the kind of novelty that it would if it could be put into intersection. And I think that that's, that you're right, there, there needs to be more. And, and see, I mean, even if I don't particularly enjoy reading Hegel, I know that that the benefits can pay off in spades, not just with reading Deleuze, but obviously so many other thinkers. It's it's kind of, you know, eat your veggies moment. Good way to put it. I'd put in another word for Aristotle like this. People think of Aristotle as a kind of boring tradition that Descartes rebelled against. And Descartes is so simple and bold that many young students want to 
take that rebellious moment, but what they're forgetting is how radical a move it was for medieval theologians to adopt Aristotle, hmm. a figure who was mostly read in the Arab world and who was known primarily through Ibn Rushd of Erois and his commentaries. And so it was really kind of risque for people like uh, uh, Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas to pick up Aristotle. And people forget that Thomas Aquinas' writings were banned for about 11 years after his death. And Aristotle was a large part of the reason why. And if you go back to Aristotle and read him, first of all, he has a really weird sense of humor, which clue people into the fact that he's not boring. <laughs> Some of the stuff he says is just bizarre, like touch is the most important sense because it's the only one where if you do it too hard, you die. Uh, okay, that's good. Unlike the others. And, and so um, these moments and uh, the way he is subtle about negotiating his teacher Plato's heritage and hesitates mm -hmm. for critiquing what Plato said. And Aristotle, of course, is the leading advocate in the history of philosophy of the primacy of individual things, individual objects. And those are not in fashion now. Right. Triple O obviously does accept that. And so I consider myself to be part of the Aristotelian tradition with Leibniz. Aquinas and some others, and mm -hmm. there are some advantages to that. First of all, Aristotle was radical in that he's the first philosopher in the West who thought the most important thing, namely individual substance, is destructible. Right. For all the previous Greek thinkers, whether it's water or the forms or atoms, they're all indestructible. Aristotle right. risked putting a destructible thing at the center of his philosophy. So there's an anti-eternalism there that's very uh, radical. And I would just like to see Aristotle come back into fashion. I'd say Aristotle and Husserl right now are the two most out-of-fashion great philosophers. Aquinas, throw, throw Aquinas in there too. When I was a student, it was different. It was Plato. Everyone was trying to inverse Platonism, overthrow Platonism, whether through right. Nietzsche or through Derrida. Or Deleuze. What's that? Or Deleuze. You're talking about your time, but he, he, he continued that trend, right, of yes. inverting Platonism. And in Heidegger's case, he did that by giving primacy to the pre-Socratics, which I think is really wrong-headed. I think he overread his own thesis of withdrawal and hiding and veiling into the pre-Socratics, when that's not really what they are. The pre-Socratics are more like the first physicists. They're preparatory to the first philosopher, who I would say is either Socrates or Plato, that old problem. But no, I don't see the pre-Socratics as the first philosophers, except retroactively. It was Plato who made them into philosophers. So I don't think Heidegger is right to see Plato and Aristotle as the beginning of the metaphysics of presence. There's hiding in both of those. Aristotle actually says pretty plainly that the essence of a thing is incommensurable with its logos, because definitions all use universals, but things are all concrete. So right. in other words, it's always a failure of, of language or thoughts to be adequate to the thing. And people forget that about Aristotle. It is interesting because... And I guess we're, we can we can start sort of delving into tool being that the two things that, that came to mind in this in your discussion of Aristotle, one would be you do seem to be fighting a certain battle against a type of maybe overemphasis of the Aristotelian reading of Heidegger, right, with the emphasis on sort of a, the dualism being poesis and, and praxis and how that for you doesn't get to, we can get to that, we can maybe build up to that. But the other thing, I guess, immediately would be perhaps the, you know, the dualism that I'm just thinking of, of someone like Simon Don who, who critiques the hylomorphic model that even if Aristotle maybe overprivileges a kind of form matter dualism, at the same time, that deadlock helps to generate a, a springboard, if you will, a view based on a, a sort of, let's say, out of the conflict or out of the deadlock of, of that dualism, there can be something led to from something static. So you can imagine 
I guess what I what I was trying to say that that even in something like the wrongheaded dualism that you find in in looking at Heidegger's like Aristotelianism as based in poesis and praxis, that can lead to something generative. And and I think that's what we start to see in some of the well, I guess we could say there's at least two dualism, right? There's a there's a quadripartite. There's that we eventually get to to four, but maybe this would be a good place to start going into the primary dualism that we find in in Heidegger. Now you've you've termed it tool, broken tool, but I guess perhaps readers of Heidegger might be more familiar with what readiness to hand, presence at hand. This is kind of how my approach to Heidegger started back in the early 90s. It started to occur to me that Heidegger is actually more simple than people realize. Once you put enough time into Heidegger, you can allow yourself that luxury of saying, actually, there's a lot of repetition going on here, not just with the vocabulary, but with the ideas. And a lot of it is about this duality or dyad between readiness to hand and present in hand. And this also touches on, on Dreyfus's book, because I think Dreyfus gets it wrong. I think Dreyfus is pretty close to how Heidegger saw it in some ways, but it's not quite right. Usually the way this is interpreted is as a, the primacy of practical reason over presence at hand. So there you get something like praxis and poiesis, main dualism, praxis being an activity which is its own end, and poiesis means a product that's been produced, that's there to be seen, that's present at hand, that's visible. And uh, Dreyfus takes this line too. He says essentially that um, the great insight of Heidegger is that there's a kind of pre-linguistic cognition that involves the practical use of tools. In Heidegger's case, Heidegger stresses that there's really just one tool because it forms a system mm -hmm. at any given moment. And tools only become individual when they break. And so these are some of the basic assumptions, not only of Heideggerians, but frankly, of Heidegger himself. And I gave myself the liberty to say, actually, Heidegger is misunderstanding his own thought experiments, great philosopher though he was. And I do think the tool analysis is the leading philosophical thought experiment of the 20th, 20th century. And it's read by lots of people. I certainly wasn't the first person to talk about it. I was just the first person to talk about it in this way. One problem is that he reads it too holistically in the sense that it can't be true that the system is one until something breaks. Because if that were the case, nothing could ever break. If everything were actually sleekly assigned to its referential contexture and guided by the for the sake of which of Dasein, uh, there'd be no, no reason for anything ever to break. Everything would consist in nothing more than its place in the system. That obviously doesn't occur. Things break, things surprise us because there's only a loose connection of things in a system. Things have an interior reality that is not fully grasped by the system. So pieces of machines break all the time. People surprise you. All kinds of things happen. So there's, first of all, the holism is wrong. You can't say that there's just this one sleek referential equipmental contexture, and then it somehow breaks for Dasein, mm. and that's when individuals first occur. And Heidegger tends to fall into that idea that being is one, and only beings are many. And uh, I've made in my work a number of, given a number of reasons why that can't be the case. That's one problem with it. Right? The holism doesn't work. The other problem is that viewing it in excessively human terms doesn't work. Dreyfus and others make too big a deal of the distinction between praxis and theory, which isn't really that big a deal. Okay, first I'm sitting in a chair unconsciously, and then the chair breaks and falls, and now I'm aware of the chair as chair because it suddenly became visible as a chair. Okay, but what that is missing is that my sitting in a chair doesn't exhaust the 
share any more than my conceptual understanding of it does or my linguistic speech about it does. So even praxis oversimplifies the things in the world, which means the being of the chair or the being of something, maybe it's not a chair until humans call it a chair, but whatever it is, the, the pre-chair, let's call it, that has a being that is no more exhausted by praxis than by theory. So praxis and theory are both oversimplifications of the world. And so we need to radically move considerations of Heidegger away from the praxis theory distinction, which Dreyfus definitely does not. He actually is way too specific. He talks about the different background assumptions about how American and Japanese babies are raised, as an example. And Japanese tea ceremonies. I was I, I read some right. of Dreyfus's essays. Yeah, he's obviously he's got um, some experience with Japanese culture. And so that's part of the references he makes. Right. But yeah. It's not a book about different types of human comportment. It is a book about being, after all. And that's not just rhetorical. I know Tom Sheehan has tried to get us to take that less seriously, but I don't see how you can do that and still have him be Heidegger. Being is the thing. What is being for Heidegger? Well, he never fully answers the meaning of being, but we know a big part of the answer, which is that it's never present. As soon as you're talking about presence, you're not talking about being, because being is that which withdraws, which manifests itself differently. He thinks being is one as opposed to beings, which are many, but I've just tried to argue that can't be the case. Being can't be a unity. And then um, Dreyfus wants to emphasize the difference between background social assumptions and conscious theoretical statements, but that's just not that deep a, a difference because the human predicament is much more challenging than that. The predicament is that both theory and praxis do not do justice to reality. They both come up short. So that already is a lot for people to swallow that it's really about the being of tools prior to any human contact with them. But then I break the internet by saying, actually, it's not just about humans either. It's also about inanimate causal relations. And I didn't take that step lightly. That came to me in a flash one morning. It was a Christmas morning while I was working on my dissertation. And I was so fascinated by it that I was skipping an all-day Christmas party to which I've been invited, held by Professor Daniel Seltzer at Duquesne, my friend in graduate school. He called me at night and said, where are you? And I said, I've been thinking all day. That's not usually something I do as an affectation. I, I, I was actually sitting at home thinking all day about that problem. What am I going to do? Is, is inanimate causation already a form of the S structure, already a form of presence? Right. And I decided that it was because uh, the S structure is not produced by consciousness or by whatever human design has that's more than consciousness. It's produced by the fact that a relation is external to its terms, which is more of a Deleuzean idea. Causal relation between cotton and fire an example I got later from Islamic philosophy, cotton and fire simply do not interact with the full reality of each other. They're incapable of it, just like humans are incapable of it. So really, it's a problem of causation. Causation is never exhaustive. It's selective in what it interacts with between two entities. And that's where you're totally outside the sphere of continental philosophy at that point, and even analytic philosophy. Your only ally at that point in the modern period is whiteheads. Because really, the, the main gambit of process and reality is human perception, human consciousness. These are just special cases of a wider concept known as prehension, which is two things relating. And uh, for Whitehead, unfortunately, prehension tends to be treated exhaustively as though things are nothing more than their mutual relations. Whereas from reading Zabiri, the same summer I was reading Whitehead, summer in 97, Zabiri is even better than Heidegger at this idea that there's a deep essence that can never be expressed in relational terms. So it was really that one-two punch of reading Whitehead and Zubiri. I'd, I'd read them both before, but not all the way through. So I did another one of those workhorse projects where summer of 97, when I was sports writing, I was also reading Whitehead and Zubiri every day at the cafe in Evanston where I was living by then. And um, 
that's what started pushing me beyond Heidegger. That first of all, it can't just be about Dasein as it is in Heidegger. And second of all, uh, it has to be about a deep essence. Unlike contra whiteheads, it can't just be that a thing is its relational effect on other things. And then the following year is when I was urged to read Latour. Even though I have many differences from Latour, as I've written about, right away, he liberated me from Heidegger in terms of his sense of humor, mm. in terms of his willingness to talk about contemporary phenomena and not just about romantic peasant shoe. Right. He's talking about Adidas and he's talking about coal mines without contempt. And, you know, when we brought Latour to Cairo finally in 2003, I guess it was, he gave a lecture on how is the price of apricots determined in Paris, which I loved, but my rather stuffy older colleagues were grumping like this isn't philosophy. That was another form of liberation, getting to know Latour, who didn't like Heidegger. In fact, I had to work a lot to get Latour to take Heidegger seriously. <laughs> that was a strange position for me to be in. That's really what changed it. Now I know, okay, I'm not working in the Heideggerian circles anymore. They don't want me anyway. I'm mm -hmm. working in Latourian circles. And Latour Latourian circles have their own drawbacks like any other circle, but Latourian circles are able to talk about contemporary stuff. I met the older Dutch Latourian Gerard de Vries once, or not once, I met him many times. When I met him, I asked him how he got into Latour. He was the first person in the Netherlands to get into Latour. And he said, because Latour was the first philosopher he met who was funny tell jokes in his papers. And that was appealing to him. It's appealing to me also. Heidegger is famous for his humorlessness, whereas his brother correctly has the reputation of being a very funny guy. People don't realize that Heidegger's brother wrote a bunch of books that aren't published. Really? Yeah, he, was, he dedicated himself to his uh, brother typing up his manuscripts. But okay. in so doing, he was, he was suppressing his own authorial career. And I'm not going to say he's at Heidegger's level, but boy, is he funny and risky. He'd say some of this stuff during the Nazi period. There's a book you can get in uh, German that I happened to find by a guy mm. who talked about Martin and Fritz's relationship. And um, during the Nazi period, you know, they had this fascist concept of Volksgemeinschaft, the community of the people. And during that Nazi period, Heidegger's brother gave a speech saying, um, Volksgemeinschaft, I have done a rigorous mathematical study and discovered that it will, I think he said, it will take 50 years for Germany to reach Volksgemeinschaft, and here at Muskirch, at least 200. And everybody's laughing out loud, and he's basically mocking a key Nazi concept. And he's got another one where he's talking about uh, a homeland and, and the country path. All of these things are very far from me, and he's, he's mocking those. So he had a sense of humor about his brother. Heidegger just didn't get it somehow. And here's another thing. People sometimes ascribe Heidegger's Nazism to his rural upbringing. Well, let mm. me tell you something. I've been to his hometown. It's a lot bigger than my hometown, probably double the size. And then the other thing is Meskirch, where he's from, had less support for the Nazis regularly in elections while there were still elections than the rest of Germany. In fact, it was a Catholic centrist town. So he has no excuse there. Heidegger's brother was never a Nazi. He owns that one. I mean, yeah, he's got the, what is it? Is it 35, 36? He, he becomes rector. There's some, it's I mean, 33. I, I, it's oh, right it's 33. Right, 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 okay. Takes over. Okay. Okay. It's during that rectorship that he's, that we have this, some of the surviving speeches, right. That he gives in, in support of, of Nazism. And it's hard to tell reading his biographies, how much of that was opportunism or how much of that was perhaps still a sense in which that there was this belief national socialism would lead to uh, some sort of higher stage of whether it be being or whatever he he seemed to have 
philosophical hopes, if you will. He seemed to have hopes for what it could be. And it's hard to tell exactly. And, and he himself wasn't really quite uh, forthcoming, even in the Der Spiegel interview. It's, it's kind of like pulling teeth to get him to to really sort of articulate what was going on. My um, view about this is that the more information come out that comes out, the worse and worse it's going to get. Uh, it's never gotten better from he- for Heidegger when new documents right. come out. So we have the black notebooks where yeah. it's pretty clear his anti-Semitism was a lot deeper than any of us ever imagined. Mm-hmm. Many, some of us, at least. Does Heidegger's politics bother me? Well, yes, I hate Nazism. I hate fascism. Is it disqualifying for me? Not at all. And and I've got something to say about this. You know, there are certain books saying he should be banned because it's not, it's just Nazi propaganda. Right. Obviously not just Nazi propaganda. You can get pure Nazi propaganda out there. It's all vacuous all the time. Heidegger's not all vacuous all the time. He's got some, he's got some philosophical ideas that you cannot unsee. That's how I would put it. Okay. The comparison I make, I make a comparison to two others. First of all, you know, there's Alfred Rosenberg who was hanged who's really just was just a hack philosopher, not a philosopher at all, just a, a white supremacist propagandist. And he was hanged at Nuremberg, deservedly. Mm-hmm. But then you get, along with Heidegger, you get two people who people go a little easier on for some reason, one of them being uh, Werner Heisenberg, I think because he was a physicist, but he was, right. working, was working on Hitler's bomb project. Heisen- right. If Heisenberg had succeeded, we could be under world Nazi dictatorship now. And yet he was allowed to be mildly rehabilitated and speak at physics conferences. And no one says, let's ignore the uncertainty principle because he was a Nazi. And then Carl Schmitt would be the other case. Uh, Schmitt was actually imprisoned for a while. And there's a heavy air of Nazism in Schmitt's writing. And yet it's the left that really likes Schmitt because he hated liberalism so much. And so I think that's part of why he gets off a little easier than Heidegger. You know, Schmitt was more involved in Nazism than Heidegger. None of that's to excuse Heidegger, who was a fascist. But here's my way of looking at it. For me, the primary job of philosophy is not to produce political content. And I think we have a lot of people, especially in the Marxist tradition, for whom it is, that you you should read a good political result directly off of philosophy or the philosophy is bad. Whereas for me, if you look at the history of philosophers and politics, what you find is that the great philosophers tend to be politically reversible in the sense that you get right enough Tegelians, right enough Kantians, you even get right enough Nietzscheans, even though Nietzsche would be put on the right. Hegel would be put somewhere on the center right, probably, even though mm-hmm. a lot of leftists like him. And you get right and left Heideggerians. You got Marcuse, who, you know, he right. left, left Heideggerian. And so I think that's, yeah, he was a Nazi. Let's not forget any of that. But that doesn't mean Heidegger's philosophy is propagandistic content for Hitler. I've mentioned before, this is my lingering worry about Badiou. By and large, Badiou's following consists of hard left people. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. You know, if you want to you want to say you're a Maoist or that you believe in whatever form of hardcore leftism, all right. But until you start seeing some right-wing Baudelians, we don't have enough evidence that his conceptual innovations are enough to land him one of the top spots in the history of philosophy. He's certainly a very important thinker. But I think there is a sense in which the really great philosophers, not that they can't be held responsible for their political views, but that they're their contributions transcend political content in a certain sense. I mean, one of the thinkers you brought up earlier was Plato. And if we looked at Plato's politics, Socrates' politics, it seems to be much more aligned with a type of authoritarianism than one would perhaps want to believe for the for a founding father of philosophy, right? So it's from the get-go, it's 
it's a strange political situation with Plato, not not even mentioning, you know, this this attempt to make a real real life philosopher king with in Syracuse. Right. I mean, like there's just it's definitely a much more complicated situation. But you are also correct that the more, uh, for example, those black notebooks come out, then, you know, it's it's confirming what we already know, but also increasing the degree to which we weren't quite so sure, right? That had always been a little bit shrouded. Yes. And in any case, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm glad that, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting because just like in your book, we can sort of clear the air at, at the beginning, right? You, you sort of uh, do that at the start of tool being and, and it's, it is worthy of discussion, but it's also been, I'm not going to say belabored, but there's a lot of work out there, right? Even what the, was it Wolin's book sometime, mm-hmm. maybe last year, right? So, which I haven't gotten to read, but I, I've sort of read snippets here and there. And, and yeah, it, it confirms uh, something that we had known, but again, the degree to which, but I do want to, I guess one of the first questions and, and Coop, I'll let you ask your question too, if, unless it's, you feel like it's been covered. Uh, you, I think our questions, our first questions overlapped, right? And in a footnote, you mentioned, I guess in April of 1992, I think is when you dated, uh, your, a friend of yours coined the term, I'll name him, right? As Raven Zachary, was that his name? Uh, coined the, the term tool being. And I do want to give you a chance just um, for the very fact, and we can talk about this a little bit, but what I like about the term, as confusing as it may be, as you start reading the book, that it's not about tools. And so I did want to give you a chance maybe to talk a little bit about the genesis of that term. And I know you say in the book, but you could reiterate the reasons for which you retain that term, despite its potential misunderstandings. Were you going to say something? Yeah. There are just, this is a good story, I think, as well. Just add some color, yeah. I think. Sure. Actually, Raven Zachary is my youngest brother. Oh, okay. Him. Okay. Um, I call him a friend just to, I don't know. I didn't feel like I needed to reveal everything about my <laughs> structure. He uh, was a student at the University of Iowa at the time, and he's always had this gift for doing strange things with language. And he created a flyer for some group he wanted to start. He and his friend wanted to start a group to discuss tools. And he sent me a flyer, and the the top of the flyer, big whatever, 72-point font, tool being, said, that's really weird. That's a weird word, but it's catchy. And so I took that as the title of my thesis, and I just did it instinctively, but then I later realized why I liked that as a title. This comes from Raymond Chandler, the detective novelist, who said that he thinks the best titles should be familiar words in an unfamiliar arrangement. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, The Big Sleep, his first novel and his most famous. Now everyone just assumes, oh, yeah, The Big Sleep is a slang for death. But he actually invented that. You know, the, big, and sleep are all simple English words, but they never appear in that order. And in fact, uh, Chandler used to make fun of. Eugene O'Neill's play, The Iceman Cometh, because it uses the phrase, the big sleep. O'Neill apparently wrongly thought it was a natural idiom of the English language, but Chandler had just coined it (laughs) 10 years earlier in his novel. So, uh, Farewell, My Lovely, the second novel of Chandler. Again, Farewell, My, and Lovely, all normal English words, but you'd never put them in that order. That's like something a foreigner would say. And so it kind of sticks in your mind. And then he didn't follow that for all his later titles, but Tool being, okay, everyone knows what tool is, everyone knows what being is, but putting them together with a hyphen is kind of odd. No doubt that's never been done in English before, and yet yet again, it's been accepted as a piece of terminology, even by people who don't like my interpretation. You, you'll see the phrase tool being show up in articles 
mm-hmm. sometimes now, even by people who, who want nothing to do with me as a Heideggerian. So yeah, that was kind of a funny story. Let me tell you before I forget another story about this book. Yeah. There's a couple of stories actually about sure. this book. This was my first book. It was my dissertation. And uh, Alfonso Lingus, who was kind of my unofficial advisor on the side, I, I wasn't at Penn State anymore. And he had read the drafts and he had told me, please think of this as a book all along because this is a very important reading of Heidegger. It must be read. And so emboldened by him, I sent off a prospectus to, I think it was 15 publishers. Then I went on spring break and I came back and there were 11 letters from publishers. And I thought, oh my God, why do people say it's so hard to get published? This is easy. Except all 11 of those were form rejection letters. I think it was 12 actually. Just publishers that didn't want to do it. So that left three. And those three played out. It was almost like a play Those on stage. Those three played out consecutively rather than simultaneously. And the first was uh, Stanford and the late Helen Tarter, who tragically later died in a car crash in Boulder, Colorado, was editing Stanford at the time before she moved to Fordham. And she was under fire at Stanford at the time because I think people thought she was getting too artsy-fartsy continental and some analytic philosophers didn't like that. And so okay. she, was told, she was told she could only publish one book in continental philosophy that year. And okay. she narrowed it down. I was one of the two finalists. And uh, she ended up not choosing mine. She ended up choosing Beatrice Hahn's book on Foucault. Was Hahn is at Essex, I believe. And so she sent me a sad rejection letter in the mail. And I thought, oh, darn it. I thought Stanford was going to take my book. Next was Nebraska. And Nebraska, uh, the person really wanted it. I sent it to her and then I never heard back. And it turned out she had left and it had fallen through the cracks. Oh, yeah. And young young authors out there, stuff's always falling through the cracks at publishers because we get too many submissions. We have other lives sometimes. Right. My apologies. I've been guilty of this in some cases. I think there are probably people still waiting to hear back from me about manuscripts. And I'm very sorry about that, but <laughs> it happens. There's nothing urgent about humanities publishing and there's not money that's driving people to, to do it faster. Anyway, I finally got a, a new editor at Nebraska to respond and say yes. And then she got uh, two reviews and both reviews looked good to me. One of them was incredibly positive. That was from Henry Statton, who's a kind of Derridian literary critic at the University of Washington. Okay. Wrote a book on Derrida and Wittgenstein, and he couldn't have been more complimentary. I thought the other one was also complimentary, but with the benefit of hindsight, it was kind of a damn with faint praise, read between the lines thing. And then uh, to my shock, when I first arrived in Egypt, the rejected manuscript from Nebraska was there with a rejection letter. And that left me with the last publisher, Open Court, who, again, the, the editor had changed, or the, the sub-editor. And so I had to write to them again and say, you know, I've been waiting two years to hear from you. And they said, oh, okay. And then I heard, didn't hear from them for another year. And then I wrote to them, this is right after I got to Egypt and got the rejection letter from Nebraska. And I said, uh, what's going on? And they said, oh, we'll try to get back to you in the next couple of weeks. And they did. And this will be November of 2000, my third month in Egypt. They said, well, what happened is we couldn't find anybody to read it. And so we sent it to our meanest reviewer. We knew he would say no. But then we were going to go try to find some fairer reviewers. That meanest meanest reviewer was the analytic philosopher Barry Smith at Mm. University of Buffalo. He's a star in analytic philosophy and in medical ontology and things like that. And to everyone's surprise, he loved to a being. Okay. He had a couple of minor criticisms, but he said this should definitely be published. It's remarkably clear for a book by Heidegger. So Barry Smith, the analytic philosopher, got me published when none of the continental people wanted me published. And I've never forgotten that. And 
to this day, there are still prominent analytic philosophers like David Chalmers, who will tell you that I'm a very clear writer. I write clearly enough to be an analytic philosopher. That's one part of the funny story. About Is that a mixed compliment for you? You know, no. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not an, I'm not half an joking, half joking, though. Oh, no, I'm not an analytic philosopher. And I it often bores me, I have to say, the way people write. And I, I think, yeah, I think they're wrong to think of philosophy as a science, have a kind of scientific culture. I don't think philosophy is a science, but fine. They have their strengths and weaknesses, just like continental thinkers do. Sure. One of the problems with continental philosophy, I'll just say it on this show, is that it's it's not a meritocracy at all. It's a cliquish sort of high school scene. And so you go to something like SPEP, and it's not clear why certain people are at the top of SPEP and certain people are unknown. And it's there's a lot of sleazy personal relationships going on. And it's just, I haven't been to SPEP in, since 1993. And that's why. It's just there's an in-group, it's a clique, and that's who runs it. And it doesn't matter how much or little work they do and how good it is. It's just they're on top. It's like a high school A scene. And then you've got the nerds who are kind of excluded. And it's never clear why people are in one group and not the, the other. And uh, I, I don't want to get into any more specifics than that right now, but I've been perpetually disappointed by what you find in the American continental philosophy scene. I'm glad it exists. Right. I'm glad they're there translating stuff and providing places for people like me to get PhDs. I wouldn't do it over again that way. If I were 22 years old again, I would try to go to an Ivy League school in German. I realize now I could have done Heidegger in a German department. My career prospects probably would have been better, assuming I could have gotten into one of those schools. But I wouldn't have gone to a philosophy department because of the way philosophy works in the U.S. Anyway, there's a second funny story about Tool Big that I want to tell. Mm -hmm. This is after it was accepted, and they wrote to me, open courts, and said, who do you want for the cover blurbs? Who should we ask? And I told them, well, you might, might want to ask Henry Statton because he gave a rave review of the book for Nebraska. I'm sure he'd provide a good one, and he did. And then I say, try Alfonso Lingus because he knows me and he really likes the book. So they got the blurbs from those two. And then they wrote back and said, you know, we might want to try to get a European translation of this book. It's actually one of my books that's never been translated, probably because it's so long. <laughs> and uh, we might want to try Europe. So can you think of anyone in Europe? And actually, I thought of Johnny Vatimo because we had a couple of mutual friends. I did not meet Vatimo in person until 2004. And then I met him again when he was our visiting speaker in Cairo. And I hung out with him a bit, the late Johnny Vatimo. I had them send it to Vatimo, and he gave a nice blurb. But then later, I heard the story from the publisher about what had happened with Vatimo. And you have to remember, this was fall 2002. This was in the paranoid years following 9-11. And you have to remember that Vatimo was in the European Parliament at the time, so he was a public figure. And uh, they sent him a printed copy of the manuscript in one of those cheap padded envelopes. And his assistant got it and kind of tore the envelope, and it was one of those cheap envelopes stuffed with lint. And so this cloud of lint goes in the air, and it led to panic on Vatimo's part and that of his assistants, because this was right around the time of the anthrax scare, where actually people were dying from or receiving anthrax. And so uh, the, the police in Turin were called to the university. They cordoned off the building. Oh, my. The manuscript of Toolbeing was sent to the Italian crime lab in Rome to be analyzed as a weapon of mass destruction, which has probably never happened to a philosophy book. And I think Vatimo left a kind of angry message on the open court answering machine. What's, mm. What kind of people are working for you? This kind of thing. Oh, my God. And then they said, no, no, it was a false alarm. The crime technicians in Rome said, no, there's nothing harmful here. It's just the lint. And then to his credit, Vatimo gave me a nice blurb anyway. But, nothing, uh, nothing harmful, but a, but a book on Heidegger, right? <laughs> it's, right. Uh, now, so maybe... I do remember you telling that story last time, so I'm glad you told it again because that that's a really it's a really fucking good story. 
And then ironically, I was later invited to be a, a summer semester professor in that same building in Turin in 2017. So it came full circle. You never revisit the scene of your crime, Graham. I, you know, that's, <laughs> but no, I guess enough time had passed, statute of limitations. It had been 15 years. It would have been funny right. if I had been arrested and fingerprinted. Right. And then released, released on, on bond. Yeah, no, that's, I do remember that story though. That, that one's hard to forget. That's a good story. And so that's the thing that I think, you know, starting with the book and realizing, for example, obviously the, you know, I think we've talked a little bit about Laurel last time, but this is just a superficial connection where I think that a phrase like tool being reminds me a little bit of a phrase like non-philosophy where it almost is a little bit provocative. It's a little bit courting misunderstanding, if you will, almost to get that knee-jerk reaction of a of a like a symptom, right? Because, you know, as yeah. I mentioned and as you as you reiterate throughout the book, and I love how you kind of say it where it's like, you know, it's good to it's kind of like a friend giving directions in a foreign town. You know, we need to hear it a few times for it to sink in. You reiterate throughout that tool being has nothing to do merely with tools, except for the fact that the analysis, the beginning of it is located in Heidegger's analysis of tools, equipment, right? Except that you point out that perhaps Heidegger missed the revolutionary aspect of his own insights, even though he seems to grasp some of it and give you perhaps the the groundwork, the seeds, if you will, to to take it in a direction that maybe even Heidegger, and you, I think you even say Heidegger would, would probably refuse. I've always enjoyed irreverence even before I first read the Wisdom Atari. But um, I think I think the title Tool Being was designed to annoy Heideggerians, even if only at an unconscious level. It's a way of using phrasing that's a little bit bizarre in a context that doesn't appreciate that, to say the least. Humorless group of scholars, much like he was a humorless man himself. I guess a philosopher mm -hmm. attacks the scholars they deserve. That's another Deleuzian sentiment, right? This question of of what is merited. Uh, and I guess it's interesting, right? Tool being versus what they're being or something like that, right? It's, it's a kind of, if you had to translate it into, into German, it would probably maybe sound, well, I guess Dasein is already a, a conventional German term, whereas tool being wouldn't be, but you get what I'm saying. One other thing <laughs> about Heidegger, this is kind of at the level of gossip, but people might be interested in this. Nothing's going to top the Nazism scandal, which could probably get worse as more documents come out. But there's also yeah. a, a womanizing scandal coming with Heidegger, apparently. Really? Yeah, apparently there's like 100 Hannah Arendts. It's, that wasn't the only such case. And I've not been in the archive looking through letters and stuff, but, but apparently many of these were Jewish students, much like Hannah Arendt. That seemed to okay. be okay. Okay. It kind of goes hand in hand with whatever anti Semitism was there in the man. Kind of philo Semitism and his preference for seducing female students. And I don't know when, when that stuff's going to come out. And it's, again, I'm not going to say it's as important as the Nazism stuff, but it's going to paint a different picture of this guy. And if you talk to older German people, a lot of them are dead now, but I, when I was younger, I would talk to older people who had been around Freiburg circles or new people who had, and you just get the sense of a not very nice person. Someone told me they knew a student of Heidegger who was trying to finish their dissertation and had given Heidegger a complete dissertation. And said, you, you, you're going to read it soon, right? And Heidegger said, oh, yeah, I'm taking it with me on my ski vacation, tapping his bag. And so this student, as is often true in Germany, was hired to um, take care of the house while Heidegger was away, or maybe just expected to do it free of charge. All right. He was cleaning the house while Heidegger was away. He lifted up a small podium and found his dissertation hidden under there. So Heidegger had lied to his student. And hid it maybe yes. purposefully, yes. This is just the kind of person he seems to have been. And, and when you read his, his letters with his wife, 
they're just kind of anguishing. I mean, his wife was not pure as driven snow either. She had her first, was it the first son was actually she had with a lover who was not Heidegger. Okay. That came out in, in some of the correspondence, but she's just anguished later in life when he's basically gone every weekend with a new mistress and she's basically begging him to stop. And on the one sense, that's, that's private family stuff. In another sense, he's big and he left behind his correspondence. So it's not totally private. He, he made himself a public figure and you just see that he, he has this habit of screwing the people close to him. Elizabeth Blochmann, another of his mistresses, who um, it's clear to me she was his mistress from those letters, and mm-hmm. she's Jewish, and he's not really doing anything to help her, and she's anguished and panicked, and why aren't you doing anything to help me? She's stuck in Germany under Hitler, and he's kind of ignoring her. You can't really find too much good about the man when you read the personal stuff. His uh, Petzit, his younger art historian friend, he humiliated him once. Petzit came to visit him at the hut, and he said, today you're going to help me violate the rules of the forest. Petzit, being a typical German, is very nervous about this. We're going to break a law. And Heidegger said, yes, and you're going to help. <laughs> and they go and chop wood together, and they're carrying this tree that they chopped down. And they walk right past the forester. And Petzit is panicking. I'm going to be thrown in prison. And Heidegger just waves at him and walks past. It turns out Heidegger knew the forester was coming and just wanted this guy to panic. Oh, man. And was humiliating by saying, you have to help me violate the laws of the forest. <laughs> and it's just the kind of thing I would never dream of doing to somebody who's a friend. Right. Anybody else. And this is just the kind of guy he was. He liked putting people down and humiliating them in all possible ways. And it's a shame. It's a shame, but we have to read him. You can't unsee his ideas. Was that his attempt at a practical joke or was it really the, the humor was in the in the cruelty? Is that what you're saying? That it, that it I don't want to speak for you, Coop, but I'm, I'm just thinking of, of like hearing the story. I hear a practical joke, but it seems like it was much more cruel then yes. okay yeah. yeah it wasn't just like um one time we were playing poker but we had a regular poker game at penn state my first year that my year there and uh my f- friend checked out a book of poker rules that the penn state library actually had and one of the other students said oh you know that joe flay the graduate officer professor flay gets a copy of what of the books that we check out to see how we're utilizing the resources and we said oh damn but then he he told us in a few seconds it wasn't true that's a practical joke but telling someone they're violating the laws of the forest, especially in Germany, where everyone's uptight about laws anyway. Right. Okay. Yeah. It just, it isn't very nice. Yeah. I see what and, you're saying. And it, it's a pattern for him. It wasn't done in a spirit of humor. It was done in a spirit of sadism. You see how he treated his wife, who wasn't a perfect person either. She was even more of a Nazi than he was, but it's just not very nice the way he treats her and other people as well. The stuff he says in confidential letters of reference about people is really nasty quite often even when they think they're getting good letters from him. So, it's, you know, he's a Nazi. He was also a bit of a jerk. Um, Some of that was in the, the biography I read. I forget exactly what the title of it was. You might be familiar with some of them. Uh, a Master from Germany. Was that? Um, I think it may be maybe that one where it, it does cover some of the, the letters of reference and some of yes. his, yeah, some of that stuff. But I was also thinking of the fact that, you know, Coop, I know you've posted... Uh, on Twitter, you know, some of the pictures of like Heidegger and Lacan, I was just kind of thinking about how we've discussed a little bit about Lacan's somewhat sadistic humor, or let's say idiosyncrasies, and including it seems like Heidegger and Lacan are uh, have something in common, which would be this, I don't want to just say womanizing in general, but perhaps taking advantage of positions of authority in order to <laughs> take out certain seduction, Lacan with his patients, Heidegger with, with students. There's an imbalance of power there that's a part of the, I don't want to just say sadism, but it's not a bad 
word for it. There's there's some sort of power kick. Yes, and, and then there was, this is from uh, Rudinesco's biography. The most disturbing moment in there to me was when he was, he was basically transitioning from his first wife to Bataille's ex-wife. And there's a moment when he's driving with Bataille's ex-wife. I don't think he's married to her yet. And he, mm -hmm. they pass his kids on the street and he pretends not to notice his kids. That was the really mean moment. And that really hurt his kids. I mean, granted, he was in an awkward position of his own making, but you end up not admiring Lacan that much as a person either. But I sure do like reading Lacan. I think there's something there. You can't deny his his brilliance. Um, that's something that that we've we've talked about. And another thing, just just back so before we we get back to to the book, I, I do enjoy these these anecdotes. Something he said about he said his name was Fritz, his brother. Yes. Uh, and and typing up, he was he typed up Heidegger's writing. Is that what you said? Yes, uh, Martin entrusted his manuscripts to his brother. His brother would type them up very diligently, very loyally. And if I'm remembering correctly, he would save at least some of them in the bank vault. I might be misremembering that, but Fritz worked in a bank. And actually, okay. he, was the, he was the more famous of the brothers in the hometown. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Because he was, he was a beloved comic orator, as I put it in Heidegger Explained. He gave very funny speeches. Brilliant man. And he wrote some actual philosophical books that I don't think had been published yet, but that were apparently of some significance. Interesting. Not, not like he's a world-class philosopher, but they were books of worldly wisdom, let's say, and very funny in many cases. I, I, and I haven't read them I've, because they're not published. I read, uh, forgotten the name of the author, but in the bibliography to Heidegger Explained, you can find this book in German in the bibliography because that's where I got all this stuff from. I, I just randomly found this book in a bookshop in Karlsruhe while I was there for an art show. And it really was an enlightening book about his, um, his relation with his brother. Maybe it's in English now, but I doubt it, but it should be. I brought this up because I think it's in the Parmenides seminar where Heidegger, as you've pointed out, Heidegger normally doesn't talk about objects, but he doesn't also fully avoid them, as we know in you know the technology essay with windmills, hydroelectric plants, the silver chalice, etc. But in the Parmenides, I believe it's the Parmenides seminar. You you perhaps would know this better than I do, but he he disparages typewriters, the writing machine, as a kind of way of I don't want to say bastardizing. I'm trying to think of a good way of paraphrasing how he puts it, but there's a way in which we are de-individualized, if you will, from from handwriting or whatever, that would be a kind of authentic relation to logos, whereas typewriters is in its standardization. And so it just seems interesting to think about that relationship with, with his brother, who would be the one doing the dirty work of using the, the writing machine. And who, who must have put hundreds of hours into typing these over many years. And I think Heidegger said something about the typewriter uses two hands, and that's problematic. Don't ask me why, but he says a lot of stuff that's either Luddite in spirit or even worse. There's What's the one he says in that one lecture course? How do things stand with the propeller? He's talking about an airplane propeller. Okay. It spins and spins all day and nothing happens. When the Fuhrer goes to Rome to consult with Mussolini, then history happens. Okay, okay. That's embarrassing yeah. one. You're right. And, and even though, to prepare for our discussion of the technology essay, I, I did read some secondary literature and a lot of them do go to great pains to say like, well, Heidegger's not against technology. And that's maybe true to the letter, but not quite to the to the spirit. 
And it may not even be true to the letter at, at all times. I mean, you know, he doesn't merely dismiss technology in the Bremen lectures or in or in whatnot. But but you you pointed out pretty clearly in, in Tool Being that the tone is kind of unmistakable. It is indeed. And you don't get that from all of their philosophers of technology. And again, it, one of the obstacles you have to run past here is Heidegger's scholars. And I'm not trying to trash scholars on today's podcast because we need scholars and we're all scholars sometimes. But one of the other things scholars do is they like to complicate the legacy of the person they specialize on. Because when you're a scholar, you're looking at every piece of material and every letter and philosophers tend to have contrary intuitions. And so you're finding more of those than the average person does. And so one of the things scholars like to do is try to show that the person they specialize on isn't as easily pinned down as people think. Heidegger scholars have a vested interest in saying that Heidegger isn't just anti-technology. That's a naive, overly straightforward view. But sometimes let's not miss the obvious, right? Sometimes the obvious is harder to see than the not so obvious. And compare Heidegger's views on technology to anybody else. He's got nothing good to say about Gestell and Bestanz and or about the United States or the Soviet Union, for that matter as being mere industrial producers of the present at hand, regardless of their different superficial politics, I think you can say pretty clearly that Heidegger is anti-technology, even if he adds the whole Berlinian point that where the danger is, there goes the saving power. Literally, one of my favorite moves by any contemporary philosophers when Zizek makes fun of that, there's a passage in, uh, I think it's one of his Schelling books, where Zizek talks about the Shakespeare Made Easy series that has Shakespeare on the left and plain American English on the right. So in Hamlet, it says, to be or not to be, that is the question. On the right, it says, my problem now is knowing if I should kill myself. <laughs> he says, you could do that with Holderlin. And you, on the left, you have where the danger is, there too grows the saving power. And on the right, if you're ever in trouble, don't panic too quickly. The solution might be just around the corner. I always like that moment. That's Zizek makes me laugh too. Just like <laughs> and I think there's a lot to be said for philosophers who can make you laugh. That's totally agree. Okay. So Heidegger is not my preferred philosopher of technology. I tend to like McLuhan, mm -hmm. which a lot of philosophers don't like. And um, what do people not like about McLuhan? Well, the left in general tends to not like anything being put in the hand of objects because they think fetishism. They think, uh, you know, Raymond Williams was the person who ruined Marshall McLuhan's reputation in the UK, and it's still ruined by calling him a technological determinist, which is not what McLuhan is. So, McLuhan doesn't say we only do what the media make us do because he says we decide how to change the media. We are the ones who deter artists in the, in the widest sense of the term are the mm -hmm. ones who can take cliches and turn them into new art forms or new media. On the left, there's often this tendency to not want to let objects do anything because then we're sacrificing our freedom and we're becoming fetishists and losing our human revolutionary ability to act. So they tend not to like Heidegger's philosophy of technology either, though maybe not for the right reasons. I guess that makes sense because typically objects would, there's a grain of truth in this. I'm not going to say no, it's not, but typically objects would be under capitalism commodities, right? And so you're right. Obviously, that would lead inevitably to critique of the, of the fetish, etc., so What's that, interesting, that, though, is yeah. it also happens on the right. And I've made this case in my book on Latour's politics that the right and the left are both modern inventions dating from the time of the French Revolution. And what they share in common is the idea that political theory really revolves around human nature. And so if you think human nature is evil and dangerous, you tend to go to the right and say, we need police to crack down. We need strong armies to defend ourselves against the enemy. 
Whereas if you're on the left, humans are naturally cooperative and good and society corrupted us and or some horrible exploiting class corrupted us. And then the funny thing is Graeber and Wengro, their best-selling book, The Dawn of Humanity, A New Theory of Everything, and of course they're anarchists, they begin, just as I begin my book, by critiquing both Rousseau and Hobbes for this very same assumption that humans are naturally good or humans are naturally evil. And then Graeber and Wengro just repeat the mistake, though. They say humans are naturally imaginative and experimental. They can invent any political form they want. I think what that misses is the fact that political space is often shaped, at least in part, by objects such mm -hmm. as geography, such as coins. You know, Marx is good on that kind of thing, factory equipment. But um, right. there's still this tendency to want to put humans in charge of politics. Otherwise, we've lost all our freedom. When actually humans are not entirely in charge of politics, we we inherit a history, we inherit a geographic location, we inherit certain natural resources, we inherit a certain social system. We don't just devise an ideal social system on blank paper. We've got to how do we get from where we are to there? And so it's not necessarily true that we should be talking about revolution, even if we're on the left in a Western democracy. Something Chantal Mouffe has written about that maybe you want to talk revolution if you're in a truly exploitative place. Not one where maybe there's too much extraction of surplus value, but but one where they're actually shooting people down in the streets. I've lived in countries like that too. That may be where it's more relevant to talk about a revolution. But anyway, the main point being, I think we need to rethink politics with non-human entities as part of the, the puzzle. It seems that tool being is trying to, and perhaps you, you couldn't tell what you would have attracted from these initial insights, but you start the battle to use the language. I think you, you take this language from the computer scientist. What, um, was it Theodore Nelson? This question of, I guess this is, this is one of my questions for you. This question of fighting old battles or old wars, and also this question of ideas which were once liberating, once granted us freedom from older ideas that had become repressive, they too can in turn become a hindrance. And so I guess on the level of tool being, the fight is being waged on the ontological domain. And it's this question, I, I was trying to pinpoint a, a few of these perhaps at one time liberating ideas that had become a hindrance and these old battles that we're still fighting, one of which I guess a few of them, and you've already mentioned one of them, which was an overemphasis on holism. Yes. And I think that that's obviously you can say more if you want. Another one I think that you you mentioned at the end of the book is anti-realism and you call for a kind of I think in the obviously the the title of your of your next book is guerrilla metaphysics. But one of the phrases you use in this book is a uh, guerrilla realism. So maybe we could start there. And if you want, you can say a little bit more about holism and perhaps a little bit more about realism, anti-realism. And this question, because I, I know you in the in chapter two, you kind of go through a number of article of authors on Heidegger, some of which uh, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Dreyfus, right? Who, uh, his robust realism. Gosh, Rorty, probably. Rorty yeah, you, you go through Rorty, which uh, I found really fascinating. And uh, I forget the other. Maybe it was Richardson with the with the non mentalist verificationist anti-realism or something like that some Okrent. Okrent. oh oh that that's right Okrent, his book on um heidegger and pragmatism right 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 i'm mixing up a little bit of, of the authors but yes i'm glad you remembered that and corrected me there but uh but yeah i mean just uh i guess this is one of those things i think you start the book by kind of saying or at least anticipating 
again, provocatively in a good way here, I think this notion that the old battle being waged is against substance. It is, you know, everything has to be sort of contextualized, put in relation. Obviously, you mentioned Whitehead with prehensions and stuff like this, but perhaps this fighting these old battles expends so much of our energy that we're not yet fighting these battles to come because this does feel like a book that portends, you know, philosophical battles to be waged in the future. Yes. And another example of an idea once but no longer liberating. Everything's changing all the time. We need to change all nouns into verbs. That's a big one. And new materialism really is feasted on that one. I don't think it's liberating anymore. You mentioned something in the list I'm trying to remember that I wanted to comment on. First of all, props to Richard Rorty. I once wrote to him. He was famous. I was nobody. I wrote to him and said I disagreed with something he'd said in one of his books. And he wrote back and conceded the points. And it meant a a lot to me. And I don't think a lot of people of his stature would have done that. And so that's something for people to... That's respectable. Yeah, and I've, I've tried to do that in my own career, and I've sometimes failed. I've sometimes let emails slip and forgotten to respond to them or something like that. But uh, it's a good idea to try to treat people, young people, nicely when you can, because they don't get a lot of nice treatment usually. I certainly didn't at that stage. People don't always want to let you into the club when you're a graduate student. don't want to help you along and let you see that things are easier than you thought they were. Oppression may be another of those ideas as well. That okay. A lot of political discourse still circulates around oppression and repression. And I'm not sure that's what's happening anymore, always. People have made the point, for example, like about the favelas in Brazil. Those people have not, are not being exploited. There's nothing there to exploit. They're being ignored. That's what's going on. And so maybe that's what we need to talk about instead, people being left out of what's going on. And I think with artificial intelligence, that's going to happen more and more. Instead of having to complain about being exploited in our jobs, we'll have to complain about not being wanted as laborers, cut out of economic production by these, these machines. And so capitalism is always evolving. And I think you know Varoufakis's book is coming out when? On Valentine's Day or around then? I'm very curious to see what he says about techno-feudalism. Yeah, uh, I'll, I, I, I got to add to the list. <laughs> that's... Zizek asked him about it once. Okay. And Varoufakis's claim was that it's archaic to complain about capitalism now because capitalism no longer exists, that we are now in something he calls techno-feudalism. And so I guess we'll need a marks of techno-feudalism if that turns out to be true. That um, you are, for instance, going outside and all of your movements are being tracked by your iPhone and by Google and uh, you're not being allowed to see everything because the corporations are actually deciding what you see on social media. I'm not seeing pro-Trump stuff on social media anymore because I hate it so much that they know they can preach to the choir and just show me anti-Trump stuff and I'm going to click like every time and I'm more likely to stay online and buy stuff if I see stuff that pleases me. Right, okay. The downside is I don't get to see as much of what the Trump people are saying, not that I want to, but I'm, I'm seeing stuff that they know I want to see. That's part of what he was getting at with techno-feudalism. Gotcha. And part of what you just said about, about I- ignoring sounds a little bit like it could be assimilated some of what and i'm not sure uh i guess this this could be outdated but just uh you know badu's notions of the relationship between belonging and inclusion there are there are those who who are included in the situation but don't belong and we can we can think about what's going on in texas sorry coop but we can think about that as which has been with us for decades obviously you know the question of who is allowed, who is considered to belong to the national situation, for example, and, and who, is, who is not. 
I guess we talked about holism because I what I thought was interesting is the way that, as I told you before we started the show, you're able to spin a good tale. And it is interesting, right? The momentum, the snowball effect that builds up to the third chapter of the book leading to your analyses of Levinas, Subiri. We mentioned you work through Rorty and these these other thinkers. And I, I do think it, it is interesting that as we start to get familiar and maybe even uh, comfortable with the terms that you've put forth, like tool being and the ash structure and these other things, they become complicated. And that gives a chance to discuss something like the fourfold, right? Which you said that at the time, and maybe there had been, have been some good, some better work done on it. But, you know, until then, I still see it in Heidegger literature where it's not quite treated seriously. We see that the dual structure of Vorhand and Heiden and Zuhand and Heit, you know, takes on a fourfold structure, which you already locate in the 1919 seminars with, I know that Zubiri has some interesting language, which I can't even remember, but it what what is it being being anything at all and and being a specific thing, right? This is the added to the dualism of presence of hand and ready to hand and your ways of reading them. So we get a fourfold structure, which I have a diagram coop if you'll if you'll scroll down just a little bit more because I do think the diagram is very helpful. And I do also think that it's a diagram that you've, reworked in later books. I do think it's, it's, is it the four dimensional object? I think we talked about last time that reworks this, um, this diagram. Yes. Um, because I think Heidegger's fourfold did discover something important. I don't accept his form of it completely. And I think he misreads it sometimes. Right. But then I, I do try to trace through the 1919 version that he gets in his critique of Husserl and contrast it with the 1949 version in the Brahman lectures. The difference between concealed and revealed is a familiar one because it's one that we also find in Kant in some form between the noumena and the phenomena. We can talk about Kant. I think you wanted to ask something. In a sure. Bit. But um, the distinction between an object and its qualities is a really important one that people ignore in the history of philosophy and that they've also ignored in their critique of Triple O. People's critique of object oriented ontology often just critiques the idea that there could be anything hidden gives a kind of Hegelian critique of that, because if you think about a thing in itself, you're already thinking it. This will be Mayasu's critique as well of Triple O. That's not the only thing going on. The other thing going on, it actually goes all the way back to the existence essence distinction that I think I think Avicenna invented, but uh, you find it obviously in Thomas Aquinas with on being an essence. It's a little disappointing there because being for Aquinas is just a yes or no decision. There's this essence in my mind, does the thing actually exist or not? Right. Being just becomes a yes or no binary. Whereas for me, being the being term of it, the object is the way that a thing is unified. And then the qualities are all the different features it has. And where you really get that is you get that in Husserl. And it's something that Husserl scholars never talk about. Interesting. Um, Go back to British empiricism, which had an incredibly powerful and quiet influence through their theory that an object is just a bundle of qualities. That there is no apple, there's just round, red, hard, cold, and juicy, coming together so often that we we give it the nickname apple, but there's no such thing as an apple over and above those qualities. And you find that even in Brentano, Husserl's own teacher, that assumption that a thing is all of its qualities. And Husserl's philosophy really comes out of a challenge to that. 
Husserl doesn't have the withdrawn dimension at all. He thinks the idea of a thing in itself is absurd. Everything is in principle phenomenologically, phenomenally givable, presentable. But what's interesting about him is that the object can show different qualities at different times, different adumbrations, and yet it's still the same object for us. And people don't realize what a powerful critique that is of Hume. When you combine that with the concealed revealed distinction of Kant and Heidegger, you get a much more sophisticated structure in which there are four possible kinds of object quality pairings. And that what philosophy really com comes to be about for Tripolo is talking about those four different tensions, not just the one between hidden and revealed. And it allows us a more sophisticated discourse on aesthetics than usually happens because you have to specify which of those four tensions you're talking about. And Tripolo has even derived time and space themselves, as well as essence and ados from this structure. So it gives us a new way to talk about time and space. And um, that's one of the results I'm proud of stuff because I spent many years thinking about the fourfold. I spent many years not really seeing the difference between Heidegger and Husserl on this point, and it came to me in a flash. And then once you've seen it, it looks like one of those gestalt shifts that you can't unsee it. It becomes uh, transformative. So um, the fourfold structure is still very important for what I'm doing in triple O. And some people have picked it up and tried to develop it. You mentioned Khan, I guess on this, since I did have this question, and I'm just, I put forth perhaps what I glean from your footnotes and the Zabiri section and mainly chapter three, where if so much emphasis, right? If tool being is, is that which could be in Kant related to what is noumenal, what is the thing in itself, right? I suppose right. the objection on your part would be that for Kant, the thing in itself is still the thing in itself for us, right? It's still yeah. perhaps it's still <laughs> reduced to our inability or ability to access it. And so it, it centers the human. Is that does that come close to at least the beginning of your distinction from that kind of uh, conception? It does indeed. And, and for Kant, the thing in itself and the inaccessibility of it is a uniquely human cross to bear. We humans are unable to get at the thing in itself. Right. What about things in themselves encountering each other? And right. Kant can't ask that question for two reasons. One of the reasons he can't is he's not even sure whether the thing in itself is one or many, because unity and multiplicity are categories of the understanding. The other reason is, more profound reason for him, is that you, you can't really get out of talking about the thought world relation. You can't talk about a world world relation, mm -hmm. because we're already doing it from the standpoint of human thoughts. And for many people, that's still a decisive, definitive argument. And I think there are two authors who help show us why that doesn't work. One of them is Ortega y Gasset. In his, in his book, Phenomenology and Art, there's an introductory essay called Preface for Germans, where he's writing uh, for a German audience. And he, he there criticizes Husserl for the reason that the observing consciousness and the observed consciousness are not one and the same. Mm. It's not reflexive. And therefore, you can't convert every statement about the world into a statement about consciousness. And then Lacan, of course, his difference between the position of the enunciated and the position of the enunciation, when he critiques Descartes, in whichever seminar it is, I've forgotten, uh, it's something prior to 11, it's probably back somewhere between four and eight, talking about Descartes and um, talking about how the cogito doesn't work for this very reason. The cogito that's observing itself is not the same as the cogito that's observed. And so you can't make it the king. You can't make the human cogito the king of everything by saying everything is only as how it presents itself. No really definitive response to that argument has ever been given. And I'll, I'll try to write one at some point, one that will convince everyone easily. 
that you can't just play the game of saying, if you're thinking a thing outside thought, that's a thought. Therefore, there's no escaping the phenomenal, which is the German idealist move. And it's the move also for Mayasu, Zizek. In some ways, it's the move for Badiou because you can never get the inconsistent multiplicity except as an after effect of the, the count. It's one of those strange things where it's an argument that I find flimsy, but it's one that people find definitive. I think my answer to that would be you, you don't really build a philosophy on arguments. And this is my big dif- disagreement with Mayasu. Mayasu says the correlationist argument is uncircumventable in a way, right? He's not a scientific realist. He says the correlationist is right. Yeah. You can't think a thought without turning it into a thought. And so he has to come up with this ingenious, indirect way of getting out of that. And if you don't do that, he says, you're just refusing the argument instead of refuting it. Whereas I'm, I'm here with Whitehead. Whitehead says that philosophy is not mathematics or geometry. Philosophy is not good when it starts from some uniquely irrefutable starting point. So philosophy is judged by its breadth and its coherence. And so it doesn't really matter where you start. And this is why philosophies are abandoned, not refuted. We don't move beyond Parmenides because somebody refuted him. He says being is and non-being is not. Well, no one's really refuted that. I guess maybe Hegel in some way. (laughs) We move on from Parmenides because that's not enough. Being is and non-being is not. It's not not rich enough. Mayasu calls this the rich elsewhere, and he he says that kind of mockingly. Yeah. People are trying to escape the correlationist argument by appealing to the rich elsewhere. I think the appeal to the rich elsewhere is a deadly argument. That if you have a very abstract and boring philosophy that doesn't cover half of experience, well, that's a mistake philosophically. Philosophy is not built up out of irrefutable arguments. If it has worked that way, then show me this irrefutable argument everything's based on. I guess some people think it's the Cartesian cogito. I don't think it is. I know that uh, in a different context, you had a footnote, but it's it's the other way around where you you show a bit of the absurdity in, say, refuting idealism based on a, a type of materialism where you where you would say well you think thoughts with brains and neurons right that that argument can be flipped around i know i'm kind of paraphrasing you but it seems like that that would be a similar type of of just reversal that doesn't necessarily that is a different that just reverses a, a type of begging of the question yes trying to ground any statement in something else means that you're missing what you're talking about in the first place. So you you could say that um, instead of following Descartes and saying thought is the ground of everything, you could say that um, air is the ground of everything, because if we don't breathe oxygen, we're going to die. Therefore, all philosophical statements are grounded in oxygen. Well, that's, you know, that's an ambiguous use of the word ground. So likewise, you know, uh, people who are into Marx are often pointing to uh, Alfred Zonretel's book about how Philosophical abstraction is grounded in the abstraction of coinage. And it's an interesting historical thesis, but that the fact, even if it's true, let's let's stipulate that coinage in archaic Greece is what led to the rise of philosophy in archaic Greece. Fine, but that doesn't mean that a philosophical statement can't exceed somehow its physical or historical conditions in the introduction of coinage. So that only goes so far for me. You know, you could say that all of my statements about anything are grounded in my inhabiting and Anglo-imperial estates that resembles you, the UK in that sense. Okay, fine. I mean, maybe you could find some things that I take for granted. You know, Americans tend to take majority rules for granted, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a useful, concrete insight. Maybe majority rules is not as valid as we think it is. It's again this historicist idea that every statement occurs in an atmosphere, and so therefore the atmosphere comes prior to the, the content inside of it, and that's not necessarily true. 
I wanted to say we, you know, we've had you for two hours and, and I didn't, I'm sorry that you're sick. I, I wanted to, I wanted to thank you for coming on despite that, but I, I guess the only other, maybe just to, to keep it light because we, we have covered a, a lot of ground if, even if we haven't devoted our time to, to your book, but I thought that maybe it, it was nice that we were able to talk about insights that were surrounding it and led from it. I do want to go back just because, you know, what came to my mind thinking about this as I was reading your book, and I was thinking to myself something that you said earlier, which was, I can't imagine Heideggerians would either utilize this work or receive it very well. And so I guess I wanted to end perhaps on a light note, just as a thought experiment, wondering aloud, what might be one of those things that would most aggrieve or most annoy Heideggerians or Heidegger scholars. You know, I came up with it with, you know, you argue, I think fairly convincingly, but Heideggerians might disagree as they have the right to do. But they, one of the things that I thought your point that Heidegger doesn't really tell us much about time. This was related to my, my idea where you show other thinkers like Max Shaler on moods or Bergson on temporality or McLuhan on technology. And you add, you could add more to the list are better at certain things than Heidegger philosophically. And yet, you know, this basic insight is what we should retain from him and why he's still important. So I guess I wanted you, I wanted you to perhaps think about if you have, maybe you have what you think might most annoy Heideggerians in your characterization of Heidegger. I put forward, you know, that you could substitute being in time for forehand and height, zuhand and height, or you could you could shuffle around these terms, but but maybe there was there was something else that that you've heard um or that you think would um would ostracize you from the Heidegger clique. Time's a good one, and I'll have something to say about that in a second, but the more general one I think is that I'm saying Heidegger is not that complicated. Okay, yeah, I see that that almost hits their narcissism, perhaps, maybe. Yes, because if you spent all these years specializing in Heidegger and he turns out to be almost as simple as Parmenides, as I say, then they're not needed. I mean, I, I don't mean it that way, but that's how pr they're probably seeing it. But that would be the yes, that would be the consequence, right? If there were ever a philosopher who didn't need to write 102 volumes, <laughs> he'd be the one, and yet he did it. And I think that's true of philosophers in general. Philosophers in general are specialists in very simple ideas that are nominally different from previous separate ideas. And in Heidegger's case, I just think in general, you're not going to find that many different ideas. Time is one that does annoy people. It's one that some of my professors laughed at when I said it in graduate school, but I, I stuck to my guns and defended it. And the point there is just because Heidegger says time doesn't mean you have to assume that he means the same thing by time that we normally mean by time. In a sense, he'll grant that point, right? But the thing is, when Heidegger says time, what he's talking about is the threefold structure of an instant. When he says past, present, and future, he's talking about the past, present, and future of the now in the sense that you're analyzing a single instance, which Bergson forbids absolutely, right? For Bergson, right. there's no such thing. Aristotle says the same thing, by the way, that time is a continuum. It's not made of nows. And or at least the now is not punctual in that tradition. For Heidegger, there's nothing stopping a now from being punctual because his analysis works just as well, whether it's punctual or not. It works better if it's punctual in the sense that here I am this very instance, I'm thrown into a situation, that's the past. I'm sitting in an apartment in Long Beach, California, and there's a whole history that goes into that. But I'm here now. I can't do anything about the fact that I'm here now. The most I can do is get up and leave. 
<laughs> start a new life. And then the, the future is the projection of possibilities I am putting onto this here and now, which if someone else were here would be different. Where we can both be thrown into the same situation more or less while having different projections upon it. And then those two combined are the, the presence. So it's a non-present at hand presence, right? Because it's got these different structures of, of thrownness and projection. There's no way to get from that to what we call time. There's no explanation in Heidegger for how do we get from this time to the next. We think of time as moving. And in Bergson and Aristotle, you get that because by saying it's time's a continuum. There's not really a moment. In Heidegger, there isn't really any explanation of that. And that's why I put him in the occasionalist tradition, along with Whitehead, who's very explicit about this. He calls actual entities actual occasions. Each instant perishes and is replaced by a new one, which is the occasionalist idea. And I suppose it was the young Levinas who cued me into that, because in his book, Existence and Existence, which he wrote in a prisoner of war camp, he talks about the stance of an instant and how complex it is compared to what we think. And he traces this to Malebranche, and he puts a Heideggerian twist on it. I think that people, Heideggerians want to think that somehow Heidegger has something more in common with Bergson, where he's also adding a critique of time not being reducible to instance, but that's not there anywhere in Heidegger. And then they'll try to claim, yeah, but you're only talking about the analysis of Zeitlichkeit. Later, he gives an analysis of Temporalität. But that's, that's not what happens in that shift, right? There's nothing that changes it from an analysis of instance to an analysis of flow. Heidegger never gives us that. And people don't like this because they take the word time too literally in his philosophy. I mean, in the, in the passage you, you quote where Heidegger even uses those two terms in the same sentence, I'm not sure. I have to look. I'm not sure off the top of my head if you translated that or if you're citing the English translation and showing the German. But both words, but the both German words are are just rendered as temporality. Which where was this from? This was towards. I guess this was chapter two. Zeitlichkeit and temporality. The translation you provide, which I assume a lot when you could, you used English translations that were extant. Both terms are translated as temporality, and they're within the same. Thing in same sentence, and you argue, you argue convincingly that he doesn't really distinguish them. Just like in in other instances where he multiplies terms, it's really not as complex as we might want to think, or even Heidegger might want to think, right? That that he's it's almost um, linguistic variety to a certain extent. In the meantime, I turned randomly in the PDF to exactly where I was talking about why there's no time in Heidegger, and that's around. Pages 65, 66, and the surrounding environment. This is top of page 65. To repeat what was said earlier, the argument that no distinct now can ever be isolated from a future and a past is the argument of Bergson. It has absolutely nothing to do with the writings of Heidegger, who simply ignores this additional theme. I stay committed to that thesis. There's no yeah. time in Heidegger. It's interesting that you show Heidegger's problem of how an instant is already and strife and already sort of uh, ecstatic and not unified is specifically his problem, but it's not Bergson's problem who they miss each other right uh, on this. Heidegger kind of misses something in Bergson's critique. I read that, that long, long footnote in being in time that you cite towards the end of the book where he's, he's going through a number of thinkers, including Hegel and Bergson and, and he does seem to mischaracterize Bergson, but I don't think Bergson would recognize your point that the incident itself is not, not any simple unity. So this is 148. 
this would be 148. And let me look at the footnote, which is 75 in chapter two, where no, you're, you're citing the basic problems of phenomenology. So this would not, this would be the, I assume the translation where it's temporality, temporality is temporality, zeitlichkeit with regard to the unity of the horizontal schemata belonging to it, in our case, the present with regard to presence. So even the, the translators, don't even bother really to to distinguish the the two terms. They just provide the German and allow it to do the work for it. Is there really, to your point, are they really conceptually distinct, or is it merely is it as complex as all that? A lot of times when Heidegger does that, it just turns out that one is the ground of the other, but there's really no reason to have a ground in the first place. I think what the translator did in that case, and it was Albert Hofstetter. I think he, when it was temporality Tate, I think he did temporality with a capital T, which in this case is lost because temporality is the first word of the sentence. Right. And so capitalized anyway. But uh, yeah, it's hard to render. I mean, in German, you can do that. You can have the Latin and then the Germanic versions of the sentence. Right, right, right. We don't do that in English. That actually makes a lot of sense. And uh, I've that makes me glad that translating french you know it's already latin enough that that you don't have to deal with that as much but no that's that's a good point as always i mean last time i know that we uh we asked you about your 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 future projects i think the last time we talked to you you were working on you were working with the architecture school what and was it in los angeles and and perhaps some writings on architecture do you have anything you want to talk about uh in terms of what we can see from you in the future any present projects sure um yeah that was probably architecture and objects which is now published and it won't be my last book on architecture but i'm i still keep working on this book uh waves and stones which is about the continuous and the discontinuous i really should have finished it a couple of years ago but I'm trying to make it clearer and clearer that's where i'm talking about the the strife between the continuous and the discrete which came up today yeah in different fields such as you know is is Biological evolution gradual, or is it punctuated equilibrium, as Golden Eldred say? Wave particle duality in physics. Kuhn's thesis that scientific revolutions are sudden breaks rather than gradual accumulations of insight. Right. All different areas. A uh, little bit mathematics and physics in there. And uh, that should be done anytime. I just I keep tinkering with the conclusion and trying to make sure I got it just right. And then I'm also working on... Um, very overdue book I have on Latour's later philosophy, which I have a number of drafts and pages of around, but I just need to organize those. And then coming up ahead, Chris Whitmore and I. Chris Whitmore is the guy with whom I wrote Objects Untimely. He's an archaeologist at Texas Tech. Okay. And uh, we are planning a larger project called Anthropoiesis, about how humans humans construct themselves or evolve. But in opposition to the thesis, you often hear that Tools are an externalization of humans. For us, tools are an internalization of something from outside humans. We're not the first to have said that, but Friedrich Kittler has something like this, and there are others. Right. But um, that's that's where the project's headed. There's going to be a lot of anthropology in there. Kind of something different from anything I've done before. So I'm looking forward to it. And in general, I like, I like the idea of co-authoring more because I can learn a lot from that. It's something I never wanted to do when I was younger, but it's something I'm much more interested in doing these days. It shares the burden as well, right? But but you also get to, a chance to broaden your your horizons and and learn a little bit from someone else's field of expertise. 
the best thing you can be in life as a student. And so I just keep finding excuses to extend my student career. I think of myself as a student rather than a professor. And so coming to an architecture school has given me the chance to learn a new field in life, which is not easy. Architecture has a vast literature, just like philosophy. And right. learning the culture to not say stupid stuff, it takes a while. It takes a lot of effort. <laughs> now, this is my eighth year there, so I'm a little more comfortable talking with architects. Uh, that's great. And it, it is interesting. You, you mentioned something sort of um, offhand, perhaps, that, that you said at, at one point, the architects moved on from Derrida to Deleuze. Now they're moving on to something else. And, uh, and maybe, hopefully, it's just a, a plurality of, of thinkers rather than, than any, any one trend. I think what happened is that architecture went through a crisis in the 1960s, just like the arts, when classical modernism, high modernism kind of came to an end. And that's when architects turned to philosophers like never before. So you had a Heidegger period, a Derrida period, a Deleuze period. And now you've got people, uh, there's been a kind of reaction. You have many people in architecture saying, we're sick of following philosophers. Let's just focus on disciplinary okay. stuff, which I think is self-defeating because architecture is the most interdisciplinary discipline there is. They have to know all kinds of stuff. So why single out philosophy? I think what they're reacting against is certain overly literal interpretations, of like, you know, put cracks in a building, that's Derrida, put folds in a building, that's Deleuze. <laughs> and yeah, that was too literal, but, you know, so what? Literalism is, is a challenge, trying to overcome it. You just need four folds, right? You just need <laughs> one, one, one fourfold, just right... I suppose that makes sense. And and I think that it's probably comes in ebbs and, and waves, right? It's, it probably, you probably need to pull back. You need a, what, anti-cathexis so you can reinvest those energies after you've kind of pulled back into yourself. Maybe that's all it is, is you need a little bit of that, that reaction. Uh, that is interesting that, and also you're probably right. Something about it being self-defeating and but it reminds me of, of the trends we see in philosophy. And, and you pointed out earlier, right, this, you don't think philosophy should be science. And I think that that's, um, that's perfectly valid. And, and perhaps one of the, one of the, the errors that Husserl was led into was trying to found philosophy as a rigorous science. I know I didn't ask it today, but we obviously you, you, you went into it a little bit and you, you go into it in tool being where Badu criticizes Heidegger, as much as he admires him for suturing philosophy to the poem. And, um, you know, there's a sense in which you kind of point out that there's a reason why Heidegger focuses on a poet like Holderlin rather than, what was it, Dante or, um, I forget, was Dante or Homer? Ver okay, yeah, there you go. Right. He's already kind of stacking the deck. To any extent, you know, there's... Um, you know, obviously, we that that would bring us into an hour-long <laughs> discussion. So maybe I really am fascinated with the Waves and Stones book. That sounds sounds really fascinating, and I'm glad that you are enjoying co-authoring because you know I, I got to do my first co-translating with a colleague, and I did find it to be extremely helpful. It, it keeps you from developing bad habits and not recognizing them, right? It keeps just, you. sometimes you need to break out of a certain self-imposed manner of, of working and and that can often be very, very fruitful. And that's why uh, I think doing a podcast solo would would be, I don't think it would work as well as, as working in tandem. So um, I agree with you about this working in groups and I'm excited to, to see what, what you've got in the future and hopefully we'll have you back before it's been 
two years. So hopefully sooner than later, you'll come back on the show and be able to talk to us about your new book. Anytime you want. I mean that. Graham, we're going to let you go uh, to enjoy your Sunday. And I just want to thank you again for coming on the show. And we're going to stay on just a little bit longer. But I will uh, be in touch with you and let you know as soon as the episode airs. Okay. All right. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Graham. And have a wonderful day. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks again, Graham. And that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. Thanks to Graham Harmon for joining us. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is